Seeking Alpha's President's Day Sale. Build a winning stock portfolio with 50% off premium membership. Seeking Alpha. Be a better investor. Hey, welcome to the Week in Bite presented by the Wall Street Breakfast. I'm Daniel Snyder, and thanks for tuning in this week. We have an incredible show lined up for you. But before we dive into our guests, I want to bring in Seeking Alpha's own Jerry Cronenberg, Director of News, to give a rundown of some notable 13F filings that we received this week. Hey, Jerry. Hi, Dan. Great to uh, see you again. Uh, so Monday was Valentine's Day, but it was also the 45th day after the end of the fourth quarter. So that means... 13F time, where if you want to see what uh, what uh, stocks the are loved by the billionaires and the hedge funds, that's when you tune in, which we covered at seeingalpha.com. Uh, some of the things that we learned, probably the biggest one was Warren Buffett, uh, whose Berkshire Hathaway took stake in Activision Blizzard uh, as of December 31st, which was excellent timing because Microsoft two weeks later announced that it was buying that company for $68.7 billion in cash. So Warren wins again. Other things that we learned about Berkshire Hathaway is that they bought into a Latin American so-called neobank called Neo, New, New, New Holdings, excuse me, ticker NU. Uh, they also sold a stake in Teva Pharmaceuticals, ticker symbol uh, TEVA. Uh, they reduced the stake in Bristol-Myers Squibb and in AbbVie, but they actually increased the stake in uh, Chevron. A couple of other billionaires of note are John Paulson of Paulson & Company. Uh, he added to a stake in CraneShare's CSI China Internet ETF which is also known as K-Web, seems to see that he is uh, interested in China and thinks that things are going to be A-OK -okay over there. Seth Klarman's Baupost Group, they initiated a new stake in fintech Pfizer, ticker symbol FISV, excuse me, while billionaires Leon Cooperman, David Tepperman of Appaloosa Management, and Dan Loeb of the Activist Fund. Third point, they all exited fintech Paysafe, P-S-F-E. That did not hurt at first, but... Uh, as we're talking now, uh, the stock is down pretty sharply today. Yeah, that's some great stuff. Um, I mean, it's crazy, though. I mean, do you do you have an opinion, if I could just ask you real quick? I mean, the, the Warren Buffett move, I think, is something that's been in the headlines a lot. I mean, we, we had conversational uh, discussions with Munger yesterday. He said he actually hates the whole video. Well, he doesn't approve of the video game side of the industry of where it's taking away um, – the overall attention span from the youth. I mean, do do we think that this was a born or it doesn't sound like a Munger move? Probably sounds like somebody that's coming in to take over there to take yeah, over. Yeah, probably right? a Buffett move. I mean, you know, Buffett has always claimed he invests for the long term, so one would presume he did not know about the Microsoft move. Uh, but uh, again, with the metaverse, with video gaming, with kids, as you said, and adults spending lots of time on gaming, certainly seems like it is a good long term play. Um, and it seems like uh, that is a place to go. The stock, um, uh, obviously, uh, benefiting from the Microsoft move. Yeah. And I do want to point out real quick, we do have a great article on Seeking Alpha of how to trade 13Fs and what to look for when you're doing so. Um, you can find that by just going to the website or the app and searching for how to trade 13Fs, and that will pop up. Uh, thanks, Jerry. We'll see you again here in a bit with the Catalyst Watch for next week. All right. Now, our first guest today is Jay Pestricelli, CEO and co-founder at Zega Financial. Jay, it's great to have you here with us. I want to dive into your perspective on the markets. Just last month, you were on CNBC telling the audience that you believe that this market is closer to the bottom than the top. Can you let us know, is that still your view? 
Hey, Dan, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is. We think that the market's got a little bit of a fear uh, tone to it right now, obviously. You continue to see uh, drifts lower. That statement was made before the rush of volatility popped in. But we're still of mind that we are closer to the bottom uh, than the top. You know, the Fed has, you know, caused quite a bit of a stir. I think there's a lot of uh, projection on what they're going to do. And I do think that it's adding quite a bit of volatility in the market. I, it feels like the market's waiting until the March meeting before it really digests what's going on. So it doesn't mean we won't have any volatility or retest the lows that we saw back on you know January 24th and that week. But that's still closer than we were than we are to the top. Okay, well, let me ask you this. I mean, we've had uh, Fed's Bullard come out a lot, talking about 100 basis points before July. I mean, what do you make of that? Do you think that's realistic or is that kind of, you know, Bullard being Bullard? Yeah, I mean, I, that's probably the extreme. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but at least you've got kind of the bookends now, right? You've you've kind of, you got the, with, with Bullard's comments, you know, all right, this is what we should look out for if we're looking for, you know, adding some risk to the market. And the market, you know, I think it expects, you know, to have those rates. It looks like he's just talking about accelerating them to a little earlier. When you look at what a lot of the big banks are saying, uh, you know, five, six, seven rate hikes are starting to work their way into all of their projections. So, you know, 100 bips that Bullard's talking about for the first half of the year isn't that ridiculous. Now, the day that he said that, the market moved quite a bit. But if you look at the Treasury market, it's kind of found a, a little bit of a ceiling here, right? Look at the five-year, look at the 10-year. Uh, so I think the market digested that. I think that uh, we'll see in March what the posture is, but we should probably assume that's the most extreme. Yeah, just as you mentioned, too, we're seeing the increase of hikes. And I brought it up last week, and I'll bring it up again this week. Because two weeks ago, we were only talking about three to five hikes. In the last two weeks, we're now talking over seven. I mean, JP Morgan just came out with saying they're they're now on board for seven hikes this year. Are we looking at something potentially running out of control here? Or is the Fed actually going to to cause a soft landing with this? Yeah, like I'll tell you, we were hopeful, you know, earlier in the year that Powell would try to thread the needle between, you know, how many raises are going to do and the quantitative tightening and the actions they were going to do uh, and, you know, keeping a little bit of, you know, stability within the marketplace. But after his, you know, last meeting and his last press release, press conference, I think, you know, he 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 did not create that kind of a dynamic. He told us, there's plenty of room for us to raise. Economy strong. Job market is strong. We need to address inflation is essentially what he told us. So, you know, I, I don't think the threat, the Fed is worried about threading the needle. So as equity investors, you want to watch out for that, right? There doesn't seem like the Fed put is there in the stock market any longer. It's more about trying to combat inflation, which obviously January was high. February is going to be high. Uh, you know, these are the things that the Fed is starting to feel some pressure that they need to address. And it's interesting that we've got all this rhetoric kind of, you know, between meetings, right? We'll see what happens in March. Jay, I've got to push back on you, though, because, I mean, we had the FOMC minutes come out this week, but also we've had the, the CPI number. We've had the PPI number. We've had the retail sales, all these data points that they didn't have at the last meeting. Is that going to change the tone? I, I, listen, I got to tell you about the the CPI number when it came out, right? The market gapped down that day, but it was like it was what was expected. What well, all of a sudden the market when we get an expected number, you know, dips, you know, gaps down two percent, two and a half percent. 
I it felt a little bit like an overreaction that morning. The market did start to rebound. Of course, we got the Russian news later that day, I think. So uh, I, I don't think the CPI is a surprise to anybody. They're already projecting over 7% for February, right? So it's in, right? So unless you get a surprise number to the upside, uh, it's numbers that the Fed already knows what to expect. So, you know, to me, I think, you know, the data is there. You know, inflation is, you know, a rate of change number, right? And so if you're looking at the rate of change or the rate of change kind of a thing, you got to think at some point inflation will start to get back towards that 2 to 3%. And when you look at the, the forward, uh, you know, forward five on the treasuries, you know, that says we're back to 2%, right, at some point. And so, you know, I do think this is temporary, not transitory, not using that word, but I do think we're going to have some high inflation numbers over the next few reports but it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Yeah. Well, let me ask you then this. As Zega Financial, I mean, obviously you guys um, manage your clients' money and everything else, but taking the Fed out of the risk for the year, what are you guys discussing? What is the biggest risk that everybody needs to be watching this year? Well, I'll tell you that is the, a Fed misstep is the biggest risk, right? Let, let's say they come in and hit, you know, five rate hikes or you know four rate hikes in the next three or four months, that's probably a little bit of a misstep. And I'll tell you why. We have, yes, there's some demand-driven inflation, but a lot of it is supply-driven inflation. And raising rates isn't really the way to address supply-driven inflation, right? You don't, but by raising rates, you're not going to get goods off of ships and onto trucks and ships any faster. You're not going to get China producing goods any faster, right? So are you really addressing the cause of inflation by raising rates? I think the question uh, has to be asked. And I, I do think that the Fed realizes just raising rates is not going to stop inflation unless you decide to put the economy into a recession, which I don't think they want to do, but might do. That's why we say the biggest risk is a Fed misstep. The Russian news is something that, while certainly um, is, is, is catching everybody's attention, uh, long term, I don't know how detrimental it is to the U.S. markets. Certainly, Europe, it's going to be a problem, certainly for commodities, right, oil and, and gas prices. But uh, for the U.S. markets, that's not the big risk. We think it's a Fed misstep uh, that's the problem. And that leads into the risk associated with bonds and the risk associated with going to cash. Both of those seem like a tough solution while you have you know, rising rates and you have potentially high inflation. Yeah. And so we're talking about the Fed. We're talking about these these macroeconomic events affecting the market and we're seeing the volatility this year. So let's let's switch gears a little bit. You run a buy and hedge ETF at Zega, the ticker for that being ZHDG. Can you explain what this strategy does for investors and why you favor it over something like a 60-40 portfolio in this environment? Sure, absolutely. The strategy itself uses options to hedge market exposure. So it will use long call options to limit the amount of equity risk that it takes. We'll buy calls and spend somewhere between 8 to 10% of an account or of this particular fund. We run this the exact same way in our SMAs as we do in the ETF. And we'll buy long calls. Uh, and that way we know the most you can lose is what you paid for a call. We all learned that when we took our tests however many years ago when we learned about options. And so when you've limited your risk to 8 to 10%, from a stock perspective, um, it allows you to do some creative things with the other 90% of the portfolio. We currently are doing a hedged high yield position to generate some dividends, but there's a lot of ways to help offset some of the cost of the calls. 
The benefit of this kind of a strategy is we really don't have interest rate risk, right? When you're hedging your high yield component and you have this long call exposure, interest rate risk that you may have in say a 60-40 portfolio is going to be significantly less. Yes, you have volatility, but if you've limited your risk to 8 to 10% on the downside for the market, um, it allows you to do certain creative things like be opportunistic when the market is really down. The, the other thing about this is it'll allow you to capture a significant portion of the upside. This isn't the kind of a strategy you build to beat the market. There's other stuff for that. This is for that moderate investor that's looking for growth, capture 70, 80%, 60, 70, 80% of the upside of the market, but do it in a way that's protected against market volatility by limiting that risk. Yeah, great. Thanks for explaining that to us. And thanks for joining us today, Jay. You be well, all right? Thanks so much. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our second guest of the episode, Uma Paterkinney, who is the world, or sorry, the global ESG lead and investment strategy analyst at Center Square Investment Management, holding about $15 billion in assets under management. Hey, Uma, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Good. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk real estate because Center Square is huge into investing in this sector and there's a massive undersupply in the market right now. So how are you seeing that affect your investments for your clients? Great question. And yes, Center Square, we are a real estate investment manager, so we can we can talk all things real estate. As you mentioned, right, what we've seen in the last two years during the pandemic is this big rush to purchase homes because all of a sudden people needed more space. They needed to get out of the cities. And we are seeing that millennial cohort aging into their family formation years. And so we're seeing this massive demand for single family homes, while at the same time, we're grappling with the fact that in the last entire cycle, there was a very large underproduction of single family homes because that was really the crux of the of the GFC. And so there was some hesitation in terms of getting back into the same level of production. And so we have this kind of structural undersupply, high demand level in the housing market. And, and so by default, what that means is that we've seen prices really skyrocket. Um, and and in, in terms of home ownership, because that's starting to get a little bit more out of reach for a lot of people, the place that we're actually really interested in is the rental side of things. Um, a couple different strategies that we're running, looking at built to rent product in the single family space. And so effectively giving people the access to the same types of neighborhoods, school districts, Kind of suburban family friendly amenities that they're looking for but doing so in a rental product um, and then also looking at multifamily as another rental option and so those are kind of the two ways that we're looking at really investing into the the housing market in an environment where you're seeing home affordability so out of reach for a lot of people yeah you just broke down a lot there but i want to i want to hold on to the supply side of this real quick because um, you know, as we both mentioned, the supply has been completely under the demand and home builders aren't racing to increase their supply because they know they can't keep it to their margins. So I'm wondering, does your team over at Square are you guys anticipating this to stay the same for the next few years, for the long haul, or is this going to change sometime soon? It, it has to change sometime soon, right? By default, we're going to start to see that equilibrium eventually show up in the market. But right now, as you mentioned, 
a lot of the home builders are trying to grapple with understanding how to really manage the cost increases that we've seen on the construction side and make sure that they're able to maintain those margins. And so for a lot of more sophisticated home builders that have the have the ability and the procurement systems to really kind of hedge against those costs, less of an issue for, for them. But we do see supply eventually showing up to meet demand, but it's going to take a couple of years for that to actually come into play, right? So this is not any sort of a near term solution from a supply perspective that we're expecting in the market. It's something that's going to take a couple years for it to really come through and match where demand is. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I know we got the numbers this morning um, or this week, sorry, about the January housing starts were down 4.1% when the consensus was only down negative uh, 0.7%, but the building permits were up. Um, and we broke over 4% on the 30 year for mortgage rates this week. So I'm wondering, you know, not talking about the supply now, but talking about the demand as these 30 year rates continue to go up, are you think we're going to see that, or do you think we're going to see that affect the demand level, even as the supply starts to increase over time? Yes, absolutely. It really has to, right? So if you think about where we really are from that demand perspective, what's that big cohort that's looking at purchasing homes for the first time? It's that aging millennial. One of the things that's really unique about this generation that's coming into that home formation year, it, those years, is the fact that they really have a very, very low amount of savings. And so you're looking at folks that don't necessarily have the ability to really put together a down payment, right? And so you kind of com you combine that with the fact that you now have interest rates that are moving up. And so now you kind of go back to that question of, okay, does it make sense for me to currently rent or own a home? And that is starting to go back into, into favor in terms of that rental, which is why we're really focused in that space specifically in terms of residential real estate. Yeah. So we've been talking about the residential real estate and the rental sounds like a really good play, but I've got to ask you, what do you and your team think about, you know, office space and industrial real estate right now with everything that's going on? Great question. So we'll kind of break it down. First, I'll talk through the office piece. And it's a really interesting topic of conversation right now as we try to figure out what the return to the office looks like post-COVID, right? It seems like for the most part, we're looking at some somewhat of a hybrid work environment for most office users. But at the same time, in order to actually get your workers to come into the office, especially in an environment where the labor market is so tight, that office space is actually being used as a way to recruit the best talent. And so you're looking at the best office spaces in the best locations with you know, the greatest amenities, those are really the types of office spaces that are going to see a lot of demand coming through. But at the same time, the commodity office spaces that are not in good locations without access to transit, and they don't really have amenities, we're going to start to see a little bit higher levels of obsolescence in that space. So from that office perspective, really interesting kind of dynamic happening right now. From the industrial side of things, What's really interesting is that we've seen this massive level of e-commerce adoption happen during the pandemic, right? It kind of pulled forward almost five years of online consumption. And so what that's meant is that we've had to kind of retool our supply chain. And you've added into that, add into that all the other issues that have been happening from that supply chain perspective. And so what it means is that retailers are really focused on making sure that they have resilient supply chains and by default, what that means is that you need the industrial real estate, which is really the backbone of that supply chain, and make sure that that piece of your, of your equation is really built out. 
And that's something that's that's expected to drive demand for industrial real estate. We can see for another decade to come, really, really strong demand tailwind, tailwinds for for that property type. Yeah, that's great. So, from so from what I understand, you guys also favor ESG investing when putting capital to work. So, what is it specifically that you look for within real estate investment opportunities, whether it's residential, office, or industrial? Yeah, great question. So from the environmental side of things, what's really unique about real estate is the fact that about 40% of global carbon emissions come from buildings. And so as we think about what the decarbonization movement really looks like, making sure that we're aligned with the Paris Agreement and being part of that conversation for real estate is absolutely crucial. We talked about office, for example, most tenants for large office buildings, they are now starting to think about their own ESG strategies, and they want to make sure that the spaces that they occupy are in line with those strategies. And so from, from that perspective, we're starting to see a pretty meaningful premium come through for rents for office spaces that are greener, more sustainable, because they can align with their tenants' requirements. The other really unique thing happening in just the last two years has, it has gained a lot of traction is, is the implication of um, the built environment and human health, right? During the last two years, especially during the pandemic, we've been focused on how things like indoor air quality, things like quality outdoor spaces, how those can really impact human health. And that's another part of the conversation. Again, we're talking about office, providing the amenities, providing proper ventilation systems, those are all coming into the conversation today. And if you as an office landlord can't really provide those types of amenities and those services to your tenants, you're at a disadvantage, right? And so as real estate investors, that's something that we're really aware of and factoring into our underwriting process as we think about what type of demand we're expecting to see, um, what type of rental rate growth you can expect to see for some of these spaces. Great. That's all amazing information. Thanks you for breaking it down for us. Now, I'm going to give you one more question before I let you go. You've been so great with us. Um, so here at Seeking Alpha, we have a ton of individual investors that are gaining interest in the ESG world when they're putting their money to work. So what pieces of advice can you share with them in regards to ensuring that they're getting the greatest impact from those investments? Sure. Like I, like I mentioned, right? Real estate is a really interesting and unique way to create a lot of impact from that perspective, especially from the environmental side, because the real estate assets are such a large piece of the global decarbonization conversation. A really great way to understand how the portfolios of these real estate companies are performing from that perspective is to look at their sustainability reports. A lot of these companies put a lot of effort into understanding the specific carbon footprints of their assets, creating plants to get to net zero for a lot of these assets. And they are really proud of the work that they're doing, right? So they're able to share a lot of that stuff online, on their websites, have really strong sustainability programs. Looking into a lot of those different nuances for these companies is a great way to understand the impact that you can have, especially from the environmental side and understanding the carbon footprint of your portfolio. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time, Uma, with us today. And congratulations on the new ETF, the, uh, what was it? The New Economy Real Estate ETF with Wisdom Tree. It's definitely an exciting space. Thanks for having me. All right. Now let's go ahead and bring back in Jerry Cronenberg for this week's Catalyst Watch. 
Dan, we're going to have a pretty interesting week coming up. Uh, maybe it's the calm before the storm a few weeks before the Fed meeting. But we're going to get some important uh, business and uh, economic data. Uh, starting off on Tuesday when we get uh, Home Depot and Macy's earnings reports. They'll tell us a lot about retail sales, what the consumer is doing. That'll continue into Wednesday with Lowe's giving us a report and eBay. Then on Thursday, Dell and Block, formerly known as Square, will report. And then we're going to get some key uh, non-earnings news on Wednesday, very key, from Mark Zuckerberg of Meta, formerly known as Facebook. He's going to give a major speech in which he's going to lay out what exactly is his big plan for the metaverse and for his company, which they're renaming uh, because of the metaverse. So that'll be closely watched. Uh, some other things of note also on Wednesday we'll get Investor days from Xerox and Cummins, two very important uh, industrials. And then on the economics front, we're going to get on Thursday uh, the latest read on U.S. GDP, which will tell us a lot about inflation and things as nature. Uh, also, new home sales, another key inflation measure, and short interest reports from NASDAQ and FINRA. And then to end the week on Friday, we'll get January durable goods orders, uh, which is a, typically a precursor of inflation. Uh, so that'll give us a read on what's going on there. Amazing. Well, everyone, that wraps it up for us here this week on The Weekend Bite. Everyone have a great weekend and we'll see you next week.